The scripture is found in Mark 6, verses 14 through 30. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had been well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead? For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guest, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. This is the word of the Lord. We're looking at the uh, life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, and tonight we come to a passage which is the most sad and tragic, let's say, of all the passages in the book of Mark. And I don't mean by that to say that John the Baptist's life ends in tragedy. It doesn't. It ends rather triumphantly. No, the tragedy is not John the Baptist's life, but Herod's. And Mark, the writer Mark, is trying to say to us, don't let this tragedy happen to you. What we're supposed to learn from this passage, I believe, are three things. What doubt does to you. Secondly, what we should do with our doubts. And thirdly, how we can get the power to do that. What our doubts do to us, what we should do to our doubts, and where we get the power to do that. First of all, what doubts do to us. Verse 20, fascinating little verse. It says, Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Now, the Herods, the Herodian dynasty, they were colonial rulers over Judea and Galilee under imperial Rome. And one of the things that colonial rulers aren't supposed to do is unnecessarily offend the cultural moral sensibilities of the people they're ruling. You don't, you know, don't, you don't, unnecessarily inflame and trample, inflame things or trample on people's moral sensibilities. But that's exactly what Herod did. Because when Herod Antipas married Herodias, who was actually his niece, 
Therefore, it was an incestuous relationship according to the law of Moses. He outraged everybody. He inflamed things. It was terrible governing. It was, it was enormously self-indulgent. But the only person who was willing to speak out publicly about it was John the Baptist. And as a result, Herodias had him thrown into prison, but she couldn't kill him. Why not? Herod, it says in verse 20, it says something very amazing. Herod was fascinated with John. And notice, after he's in prison, it says, Herod heard John. He was greatly, he loved to hear him, but he was greatly puzzled even though he liked to hear him. Now, what this means is after John the Baptist was put into prison, uh, Herod would bring him out and let him do what he did, which is preach. Why in the world would you bring a person out day after day to preach to you that just denounces you? Now, if you think I'm bad, I'm nothing like as strong as... uh, uh, as John the Baptist, and you can imagine. By the way, wouldn't, wouldn't it be interesting? One of these, one of these times, I, I imagine I'm going to come, and only be one person here, and I'll say, "Great, we can be pretty specific tonight." Uh, uh, and of course, here's Herod inviting that sort of thing. Why in the world would Herod <clears throat> have John the Baptist come out again and again to denounce him? And the answer is that on the one hand, Herod liked him, and the word "liked" is a strong word. It means Herod found John the Baptist's preaching sweet. There was something in his message that that touched Herod's heart. He was attracted to him, but on the other hand, he was also repulsed. This word puzzled is the English word translates, that's not the best English derivation of, of, uh, I think, uh, rendering of the Greek word. The Greek word that's used here is very interesting. It's the word aporeia, and, and poreia meant to get on a road and make progress, you know, to march and make progress on a journey. Opere, though, meant uh, to be uh, uh, paralyzed by indecision, to waver indecisively, for perhaps at a crossroads, not knowing do I go this way or that way. Or even more so, uh, a person who wants to get on the road but is afraid to get on the road, and that's exactly where we have Herod. Herod is pulled. Herod is divided. He, he's attracted and repulsed. He wants to get on the road that, that John the Baptist is calling him on to, but he's afraid of getting on the road. Now, there's a whole family of words, and this is one of them, in the New Testament that get across, uh, these Greek words get across the New Testament understand, idea of doubt. Doubt. In James chapter 1, the most famous of the words that gets across the word the idea of doubt is the word dipsychos, which literally means two psyches, two minds. Uh, doubt is to be double-minded, to see this looks good, but so does this look good, and I can't choose between them. But I like this word even better because it's a physical word, and it reminds me of something I often do very stupidly whenever I'm in a workout room. If you're, if you're, sitting on, if you're standing still on, on the, the ground and you try to step up onto a moving treadmill... Uh, and you are, your body is not really prepared for the speed of the treadmill. Suddenly, for a moment, you waver, you teeter, you, uh, you've lost your balance, and, you're, and it won't last long. <laughs> this, this moment of doubt, in a sense, you see, physical doubt, vertigo, dizzy. I'm not, you know, for a moment, you're not really on or off. You're not really in or out. Uh, and you won't 
stay in this situation for long. You will either very soon crash back onto the gym floor or you will adjust and get onto the treadmill. But that's where Herod was, and that's what doubt is. Doubt is that moment of vertigo, that sense of having lost balance, and I don't know which way I'm going to go. Two things in front of me, and I don't know which one I'm going to take. And this doubt, this experience of spiritual vertigo, is something you can actually experience both outside and inside the Christian faith. You can experience this as you're trying to come in or as you are inside. So what do, what do I mean? For example, Mark chapter 9, we'll get to this in a few weeks. There's a very interesting place where a man with a boy who's got convulsions comes to Jesus and says, would you please heal my son? And Jesus says, I can if you believe. And the man says, do you remember what he says? He says, I believe, help my unbelief. I do and I don't, he says. I believe, but I'm having trouble believing. There it is. Here's a man who's coming to Jesus, trying to believe in Jesus, but he's perched on the edge. You know, he, he feels like, I do believe, but I don't believe. I, I do believe, but I'm so filled with doubts, I, I don't. But this can happen to somebody inside faith. Because in, in Psalm 73, a very famous psalm, we, we uh, see a man who believed in God, but because of the terrible injustice that he experienced and because of the terrible suffering that he experienced, it drove him to the edge, and he felt he had lost his balance. In fact, he says, my feet almost slipped. And there, the image is very similar to what we, these other images. It's being perched on a mountain path. And you're, suddenly, you've lost your balance, and you, you don't know whether you're going to fall off or you're going to regain your balance and come back on. But for a moment, he lost his assurance about God. He didn't know why God was allowing all this stuff to happen. And that's doubt, that spiritual vertigo, that wavering, that sense I've lost my balance, I don't know which way I'm going to go, uh, being pulled between two options, that is doubt. When you get into this time, and everybody at some point will go through it, whether you are a believer uh, of Christianity or you're not a believer of Christianity, almost everybody goes through these times. When you're in one of these episodes, what should you do? And I'd like to suggest, and I think the passage suggests, there's three things you ought to do. Three things you ought to do when you go into a period of doubt. The first is you need to see it positively as a window of opportunity. You see, have to see it positively The whole point of this passage is to show that Herod had a window of opportunity to change his life, and he didn't take it. We'll we'll talk about how he didn't take it or why later. But for now, we have to realize that here's Herod. And the Herods, we all know from history, were miserable men because they were power-hungry. And if you're power-hungry and you're exploiting people and you're literally stabbing people in the back to keep power, you're lonely, really lonely. And Herod had this moment this opportunity because of his struggling with doubts in which he could have changed his life. So you need to see see doubt not as a negative but as a a window of opportunity. Now, that's why do we have to say this? Because in religious circles, doubt is seen, unlike in the Bible, in completely negative terms, completely negative. Why? Well, that's a good question. See, religion, as we often say, is... Religious people operate on the principle, I obey, therefore God accepts me. But Christianity and the gospel operates on the principle, I'm accepted because of the work of Jesus, therefore I obey, gratefully. Religion is I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And therefore, in religion, faith and doubt has a very, very distinct uh, role. 
in religion, religious people feel like, well, God has to bless me because I believe so strongly. That's why God has to hear my prayer. That's why God has to uh, uh, take me to heaven. That's why God has to bless me and, and help me because I believe so strongly I don't doubt. You see, I am so certain that, and I don't question. And that's the reason why in religious circles, if you express doubts very often, they'll just take your head off. They'll take your head off because they don't want you to remind them that they've got doubts and they're suppressing because it's important for them to experience psychological certainty. That's how they know. That's how they can, that's how they can obey and they can merit God's blessing. But that's not at all the way the Bible looks at faith and doubt at all. So, for example, if that was completely negative, why does uh, the New Testament in Jude verse 22 say, be merciful to them that doubt? Hmm? That's a command. Christians, be merciful to them that doubt. If doubt was just an awful thing, why would the Bible say to you when you see doubters, when you, when you deal with doubters, be understanding, be patient, be welcoming? But here, even more poignantly, let's go back to that man in Mark 9. Here's a father, and he says, heal my son. Jesus says, I can if you believe. And the man says, I want to believe, but I really don't believe. I'm trying to believe, but I really can't believe. I think I can believe, but I'm filled with doubts. And does Jesus say, well, excuse me, sir, you need to get a grip. And you need to go away and get yourself together. I can't deal with you until you really believe. So I want you to go away, and I want you to work on things here, you know. And you deal with your issues. But then when you come back, I want you to say, Jesus, I believe. And I don't want to see any doubt in those eyes. I want, you to, I want to be 100% sure, 100% sure. And then I can, is that what he does? No. No. I'm afraid that's what an awful lot of people think they're supposed to do. But he doesn't. He says, believe. And the man says, I'm trying to believe, but I, I, I can't quite believe. And I'm believing, but I don't have full of doubts. And Jesus heals his son. Now, why would that be? And here's why that would be. If you're about to fall off a cliff... And I have dreams about this all the time. So I thought every so, every so often I use this illustration. You're about to fall off a cliff and you know it's so far down that you're going to die if you fall off this cliff. And suddenly as you're falling, you look off to the right and you see a branch sticking out of the cliff. Now that branch has got uh, the strength to hold you and save you, but you're not sure of that. You don't know that. How certain have you got to be about the branch for it to save you? If you are only 10% certain, if you say, I don't think this is going to hold me up, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I don't think it's going to hold me up, and you reach out and grab me, you're only 10% sure, are you only 10% saved? No, you're 100% saved. Silly. Because it's not, it's not the quality of your faith in the branch that would save you, it's the branch. And therefore, see, religious people do not understand faith and doubt because they don't understand grace. They think it's the quality of their faith that brings God's salvation. It's the quality of their faith in Jesus. But no, it's the object of your faith. It's Jesus, not the quality of your faith. And you are going to be so screwed up if you don't understand this incredible distinction. And one, because there's all kinds of ways it's going to screw you up. But in this one, I'm, the one we're talking about here, is you're going to think doubts are a terrible thing. I've got to banish all doubts. I can't have any doubts. And you're going to miss the fact that doubts are a wonderful window of opportunity. Now, how are they? The second thing you have to do, besides see it as a window of opportunity, realize that the opportunity is that doubts will drive you to look at the foundations of your life. That's what's so good about doubts. 
Doubts will force you to look at the real true foundations of your life. Your worldview. What do I mean? Look at Herod. What brought Herod into this episode, this window of struggling with doubts? His fear of John. What does that mean? See verse 20? It said John, it said Herod feared John. And you say, what does that mean? Well, it couldn't mean he was scared of John. He was in chains. When the Bible uses this term like this, what it means was that Herod was filled with awe and wonder and respect. He looked at this man's integrity. He looked at this man's courage. The only man in the kingdom who would tell him to his face the truth. Now, what this did was it threw him into doubt. Why? Because John the Baptist was challenging Herod's very worldview. How, if you're a power-hungry person like Herod, and, and you get where you are by exploiting people and trampling on people as you move up the ladder, how do you live with yourself? Well, powerful people have been doing this all, for, for centuries like this. They develop a worldview, a grid. And here's how the worldview goes. They look out at the world and they say, everybody's out for themselves. Everybody. Oh, yes, there are some of these people that talk about being noble and sacrificial and virtuous and good. But all that talk of being noble and virtuous and sacrificial or good is their way of getting power. It's just their way of, of getting a leg up on everybody. Everybody's doing everything for themselves. There's really not good people and bad people out there. There's people doing good and bad and using goodness and badness to get ahead themselves. Well, I'm going to do it to them before they do it to me. It's power all the way down. Now, that worldview has been with us for centuries because it's very plausible because there's so much exploitation out there. And if you adopt it, it enables you to justify terrible abuse of other people in your life. That was Herod's worldview, and now along comes John the Baptist. And what's happened? If Herod's worldview is true, John the Baptist shouldn't exist, but John the Baptist does. You see, Herod must have been looking at John the Baptist and saying, what is this guy getting out of this? What's his angle? And he might have been getting him out every single day, every single day saying, what are you getting out of this? But it, from, the more he looked, he realized he's not getting anything out of this. He's telling the truth, and it's, he's doing it at the cost of his life. Every single day he could lose his head because he's telling the truth. He's getting nothing out of it. And wait a minute, what does that mean? Is it possible that he is actually speaking for God and for the truth instead of just for himself? And does that mean, therefore, that there is something to live for besides status and power? John the Baptist came into Herod's life and began to shake his worldview because his worldview couldn't account for John's existence, but John existed, and therefore maybe his worldview wasn't true. See? Maybe his foundational beliefs weren't true. Doubt is always something that does that to you. Uh, George MacDonald, the Scottish uh, writer, in a marvelous little proverb puts it like this. He says, everything difficult indicates something more than your theory of life yet embraces. Everything difficult, everything difficult indicates something more than your theory of life yet embraces. What he means is that when you get into difficulty, whenever you get into struggling and doubt, you know why? Something has come into your life that shows that your existing theory of life isn't adequate. It can't deal with reality. Remember some years ago, counseling with a woman in my church in Virginia, and she was a strong Christian, but some horrible things had happened to her, horrible. And she was thrown into a, a Psalm 73 feeling. She began to waver. She began to experience the vertigo. She said, 
I can't believe that God would do this to me. How could he do this to me? And he, she lost all of her assurance and she struggled with doubt. But I remember, after a very long time, a single question liberated her. And that single question was this. If God could allow his most committed, perfectly committed servant, Jesus Christ, to suffer horribly for redemptive and wise purposes, which at the time nobody could understand, why couldn't he let other less committed servants of his also suffer inexplicably and still be good reasons for them as well? You see, the reason it liberated her, I remember very clearly her saying, I, up until this moment, had believed in a God who wouldn't let anything really bad happen to people who are good. But you see, if, if, if God really never let anything really bad happen to good people, I couldn't be saved because what do you think the cross is? That's something really bad happening to somebody really, really good. And she had never thought out the implications of the cross, and she realized that her God was too small for the real world, that her understanding of God wasn't the full biblical understanding. Doubt is always a situation in which reality has come and challenged the grasp you have on God, the theory of life you've got, the worldview you've got, the paradigm you've got, and shown it to be inadequate. And that's the reason why you're wavering, because you're trying on a new paradigm. You're thinking, well, maybe there's a new way of thinking about it. But then you look at the old one, and so you experience that vertigo. But if you move forward into fuller faith in a real, full, biblical God... Your doubts are a way to make you great. And that's the third thing you've got to do with doubts. You have to see it as a window of opportunity. You have to let it really make you examine the foundations of your life. And then you've got to move ahead decisively. You've got to make a decision. Verse 21 is deeply ironic. See what it says? When the opportune time came. What? Opportune time for who? Herodias. Herodias suddenly saw this banquet, and she says, this is my chance. But the terrible irony, and I mean it's a terrible irony, is that when Herodias's window of opportunity opened, Herod's closed forever. Because Herod had this window of opportunity. He was listening to, to John every day, you know, perhaps, over and over and over again, and he had a chance to change his life, and he was processing, 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 never made a decision. But when Herodias saw her window, her moment of opportunity, she was decisive. And when she opened her window, his closed forever. Because he didn't make a decision, and she did. He, she acted decisively, and he wouldn't. And when that closed, it was gone forever. The opportunity to change was gone forever. Verse 14, 15, and 16, do you see? Not long after John the Baptist was killed, you still see Herod's conscience getting after him. When he hears about Jesus Christ, he's intrigued because Jesus sounds like John the Baptist. And he says, it might be John the Baptist back from the dead. He's haunted by John the Baptist. His conscience is still after him. And he's fascinated by Jesus. But it won't last. Because when we get to the end of the book of Mark and we get to the end of all the Gospels, you know what happens. Jesus goes before Herod and all Herod does is mock. Herod shows no spiritual interest anymore in changing his life. He shows no spiritual openness to Jesus Christ, and Jesus doesn't say a word to him. The moment of opportunity to change his life was gone forever. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote that big book, trilogy, Lord of the Rings. And you know he says that when he would reread that book, there was only one place that moved him to tears. There's one place when he was reading it that moved him the most in his whole book. What would that be, do you think? 
What was the one part that got choking himself by the throat the most? It is the place in the third book, or no, near the end of the second book, it's the place where Gollum is about to betray Sam and Frodo to the terrible, monstrous spider Shelob. And they don't know that he is leading them into her lair. And right before he's about to lead them into her lair, he comes back to get them, to take them there, and finds that they're asleep. But when he sees them asleep, something happens to Gollum. You know, in the book, whenever Gollum's eyes get green, it's the evil Gollum, but the the green goes away. And he looks at them and he starts to relent. And he starts to shake his head. And he says, I can't do this, basically, inside. And he starts to have this internal struggle, you know, like Herod, between these two options. And he begins to reach out a hand to touch Frodo's knee and caress it. And he's about to change. But then suddenly Sam wakes up. And this is what the, how the passage goes. Hey, you, said Sam roughly. What are you up to? Nothing, nothing said Gollum softly. Nice master, nice master. Sam says, where have you been to? Sneaking off again and sneaking back, you old villain. Gollum withdrew himself and a green glint flickered again under his heavy lids. Almost spider-like he looked now, crouched back on his bent limbs with his protruding eyes. The fleeting moment had passed beyond recall. The moment to change his life had passed, beyond recall. Tolkien couldn't read that without weeping. And here's what I want you to consider. You do not have the power and the control over your heart you think you have. If right now, if at any time in your life, but if right now you're feeling open to do something and you know you should do it, but you're afraid to do it, you really ought to get to it, but you're not really getting to it, don't you dare think that that window of opportunity is going to be open forever. It is not. You don't have that kind of control over the tenderness and openness of your heart. Ten days from now, ten months from now, and certainly ten years from now, you're going to be incapable of doing the thing that right now you know you ought to do. You will not become the person who's capable of it. You'll become a person who's incapable of it unless you act now, now. Doubts, the wrestling, the struggling, especially when you see you need to change the very foundations of your life, especially when you see you really need to give yourself to the full God, the real God, the biblical God in the fullest possible way. When you have an opportunity to become something great, you must take it because it will not stay open. You must decide. Or the moment can be gone forever, beyond recall. That's tragedy. Don't let that happen to you. Is there anything right now that you know you ought to be doing and you're wavering about doing it and you keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off? Don't you dare. All right. There's what doubts do to us, and there's what we should do to doubts. But how are we going to really avoid being Herod? Because you know what? It's hard. That's why we're wavering. It's hard to do this thing that we're thinking about doing, but we're afraid about doing. You see, that, that vertigo that we experience is, uh, is very difficult to get through. How are we going to get the power to do the right thing? And the answer is two last ideas. And the two last ideas are you need to recognize your fear, your greatest fear, and you need to look past your heroes. You need to recognize your greatest fear, and you have to look past your heroes. What do I mean by recognize your greatest fear? Well, what happened to Herod was very simple. But you, if you want to understand, you have to, for a moment, listen to something that Soren Kierkegaard said. Kierkegaard said very wisely that sin is building your identity on anything besides God. 
And what Kierkegaard means by that is that the root at the foundation of every single human being's life is a savior. Whether you think you're religious or not, whether you look at it that way or not, at the foundation of every single one of our lives is a savior. There's something we're building our identity on, our self-worth on, something we're basing our significance on, our self-esteem on, our deepest hopes It could be power, it can be approval, it can be a career, it can be an individual person's love, it can be your family, it can be your looks, it can be your intellect, it could be the causes that you're involved in. But everybody looks to something besides God to be the real thing that turns your crank, that makes you feel good about yourself, that gives yourself meaning in life. Everybody does. But when that happens, whatever that thing is, you're a slave to. Isak Denison, this great place in, uh, out of Africa, says this. Pride, she says, and by that she means spiritual self-esteem, divine self-esteem. Pride is faith in the idea that God had when he made you. If you have this kind of pride, you do not strive for happiness or comfort, which is irrelevant to God's idea of you. Many people are not aware of any idea God had in the making of them, and they have got to accept as success what others warrant to be so, and to take their happiness and even their own selves at the quotation of the day. They tremble with reason before their fate. And what she is saying is really simple. And here's what it is. Whatever is the main central thing in your emotional life, the thing that most makes you feel good about yourself, you're a slave to it. Herodias knew that, and that's why she was lethally successful. Because even though Herod was starting to feel fear toward John the Baptist, Herodias knew that what he really feared was the loss of face before powerful men. She knew what he really was afraid of because he, she, he had built his life on knowing I have power and I have status and I have recognition and all the other powerful people know it. And she knew he couldn't possibly lose face. And that's when she knew he had him. But because that was the foundation of his life, he was a pawn. And if anything but Jesus Christ is the center of your life, if you have any other source of self-worth and self-esteem than the love of God through Jesus Christ, you're a pawn to. You're a slave to that. It doesn't matter if it's a career. You'll be a slave to something going wrong. It doesn't matter if it's your family. You're a slave then of fear to something going wrong in your family. You're a slave to fear. But look at John the Baptist. He had an identity built on the fear of God, and as a result, he feared nothing else. He could spit in the world's eye. He did the right thing at the cost of his life, but Herod couldn't do the right thing at the cost of looking bad at a cocktail party because he didn't know, like Herodias did, his ultimate fear. Do you know your ultimate fear? Because when you're wavering between absolute, total, central commitment to Jesus Christ and anything else, you have to know that you are teetering between joy and fear, freedom and slavery. And if you see that, that'll begin to give you the power to do the right thing. However, the second thing, if you want to have the power to do the right thing, the second thing you've got to do is look beyond your heroes. And what do I mean by that? I have a feeling that Herod made the mistake that I've seen an awful lot of people make over the years as a pastor. When people start to realize, I really need God, I need spirituality, I need something like that, what do they do? They get religious And usually that means they fixate on some moral heroes. They may read the Bible and they say, ah, look at Abraham and Moses and David. I want to be like them. 
See, that, then I, that would fix my life. Or maybe you find modern saints, you know, like Mother Teresa or Dietrich Bonhoeffer who really sacrificed everything. Or maybe somebody who's a secular person who's not, you know, not a, a religious person. Or maybe there's just somebody in your life that you look up to and you say, there's a, my moral hero. Herod was doing that with John the Baptist. But that is a dead end. Because you look at a moral hero, and I can imagine what Herod would have been looking at John and saying, here's the one man with the courage to say to me the truth, even though it could, it could, it could result in his, his death every single day. He's the only man in the kingdom with that kind of guts. Look at that man. I would like to be like him, but I could never be like him. Who could be like that? Who could never be, have any doubts and never have any fears? I could never be like him, and of course that's a dead end. But he didn't really listen to John. Because I'll tell you, John the Baptist is one hero that always pointed beyond himself. We know something about John the Baptist preaching, and he never, ever, ever said, if you want connection with God, be like me. Never. You know what John the Baptist said in his sermons? I can give you a quote. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. I can give you a quote. He must increase, and I must decrease. John the Baptist says, you will never be fearless like me until you actually understand and look to the one to whom I point And what he did on the cross. Now, what did he do there? This is the secret. This is the secret. What did he do on the cross? Do you know that hymn that goes like this? When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. You know that? What is that talking about? When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. It's talking about doubt. It's talking about when God's face seems to be veiled, darkness. It's like a sense that God's not really there. It's the struggle that everybody, almost everybody I know, has gone through at some point. But on the cross, Jesus actually, actually did lose the face of God. Jesus experienced the ultimate darkness. Jesus experienced the ultimate vertigo. He experienced the ultimate sense of of falling, and he fell. Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish preacher, years ago put it like this. On the cross, Jesus had no feeling that God loved him, no feeling that God supported him. God was his son before. Now that son became all darkness. It was as if he had no God. Oh, this is the hell which Jesus suffered, and I feel like a little child casting a stone into some deep ravine in the mountainside, listening to hear its fall, but listening in vain. It's too deep to understand. There's the ultimate vertigo. Jesus Christ really lost God's face. So that when you and I feel God's not with us, we can look to Jesus on the cross and say, if he did that for me, he took my penalty for me, so that I could be accepted in spite of my impurities. Now I know that God is still holding onto my hand in spite of the impurity of my faith, the impurity of all my doubts. I'm not saved by the purity and quality of my faith. I'm saved because Jesus Christ experienced, you might say, the ultimate doubt. Not that he doubted. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But he experienced the ultimate loss of God's reality, the ultimate nausea, the ultimate vertigo. He fell for you and me so that when you and I experience this, we can know that God still loves us, that we don't have to have our act together. And if, just grab the branch. Jesus Christ is the branch. You're saved by him, not by the quality of your faith in him. If you know that, then, then suddenly when you go through these times of doubt, it can really be an opportunity. You won't freak out about the fact you're having them. And you'll look at your foundations and you'll make your decision and you'll see 
a God that's bigger than the God that you used to believe in that can handle reality, a gospel that's bigger than the gospel you used to believe in so it can handle reality, and you'll let your doubts move you into greatness because you know you're saved by grace, not by purity of certainty. You get that? Let's pray. Lord, do we get this? I don't know. I don't know that I do, and I just explained it. But I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would show us that when darkness hides your lovely face, it's only apparent, not real. Because Jesus Christ, your son, got the real loss of God. Our loss of God's reality is only apparent. It's a time of doubt. It's a time of struggling, a time of of opportunity to grow in grace and greatness and faith. And we pray that for those of us who are going through it now, we might take the things we've learned here tonight, use them and grow. And for those of us who are not, we might remember the things we've learned tonight and be prepared for those times. For we ask it through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.